We continue in our study of Exodus. We're in Exodus 19 again. You remember we started that last week. And chapter 19 of Exodus is extremely important, and I just want to encourage you to spend some time there. Uh, We reflected on verses 1 to 6 last Sunday. If you recall, one commentator calls those verses the heart of the the whole Old Testament. So if you want to kind of like... uh, assess and meditate on the heart of the Old Testament, go to verses one to six. Another summarizes those verses as saying that they encapsulate the covenant relationship between God and his people, that inner life and dynamic of the covenant. Well, another Sunday we're gonna dig into the elements of the covenant itself that's depicted in chapters 19 through 24. This Sunday, as we look through chapter 19, we're looking at how this chapter readies God's people for the law in chapter 20, and also establishes the right perspective on the law, which comes again in chapter 20. So again, last week we looked at verses one to six, the inner dynamic of the covenant of grace. Um, And In verses four to six, uh, you see a past, a present, and a future. So real quick, that past is verse four. Uh, What's our right view and perspective of the law? Well, the past is verse four. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Notice that's past tense. God's done that. And so, God is addressing his people that he has redeemed. Uh, They did nothing for that. God bore them on eagle's wings and brought them to Sinai. It's sovereign grace. It looks like Jesus accomplishing your redemption at the cross and the Holy Spirit granting you the gift of faith and repentance. Sovereign grace, saving you, redeeming you, past. That's our foundation. Well, then we get to verse 5a, and 5a speaks about the present. It says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So God's charge to obey and keep comes after. It's to his redeemed people not to get redeemed, but because they are redeemed. God doesn't give us the law to get accepted. He gives us the law because we are already accepted in Christ. By their obedience, they keep the covenant. Notice, they don't make a covenant. They're in it already. They're not trying to get in it. Their obedience isn't the entryway into a relationship with God, but evidence of their relationship with God. And so that takes us to 5b and 6a. It speaks about the future. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Beautiful descriptions of God's people, yet the issue is God has already made them that, really. That's why they made it to this point, is that he views them as precious. He views them as a kingdom of priests, his holy nation. You remember when Moses goes to Egypt 
God says, Israel is my firstborn son because I loved them. Why? I loved them. And I made a covenant with Abraham to make them that 400 years earlier. So the point here in this future statement is, God's saying, if you will obey me and get to know me and learn to love me and walk with me, you're gonna grow in your enjoyment of me and your experience of the blessings of living in covenant with me. Just like any good relationship, when we understand one another and seek to please one another, we live in fellowship with one another. And that's what God's saying to his people. The past, the present, the future. You are redeemed. Now you obey and you'll deepen your devotion and love and intimacy with me. Um, there's a scholar, Motir, says nothing must ever be allowed to upset that order. Strong words for a commentator, and that's the truth. It revolutionizes your approach to God's law. We don't keep it anxiously hoping to be right with God. We keep it because we're delightfully living in fellowship with such a loving God. Has that encouraged you this week? I can't get enough of that. I need it every day, and I hope that's the case for all of us. As good as that is, we have more in chapter 19. So let's read from verse seven through the end of the chapter. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. 
And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this good word endures uh, even to today and even to eternity. So as great as what we've already looked at is, we see more of an uplifting view of God's law here. And notice it all takes place in a worship service. Chapter 19 through 24 is actually the very first corporate worship service of the people of God. And so it shows us something about the law that it's not just something we do out here, but we learn that following God's will is a significant element of our fellowshipping with God in worship. Now, I want to say three things about what we've read. One is, what's God like? Then how do we approach God? And then who do we need? So what's God like here? The, the, the law is not just a, a code out there, but it comes from a person, from God himself. So I titled this sermon, God the Terrifying and Inviting. It's hard for us to put both of those together, but that's what we see here. Um, God's revealed as both transcendent and as imminent, high up and also nearby. Uh, One commentator, Riken, says the church always struggles keeping these two aspects of who God is together. Sometimes we emphasize one to the expense of the other. And we'd have to say in our day and age, we definitely emphasize more God's imminence than his transcendence, don't we? The fact that he's close by rather than that he's high up. And that's a, a dear truth, the fatherhood of God, the friendship of God, a dear truth. But if we lose sight of the fact that God is majestic, as he's presented here, we're going to inevitably develop an attitude towards God that's thoughtless, that's unprepared, um, that's casual, that's me-centered, that keeps me at the center and God around me. This passage helps us. Um, We see here that God's glory utterly dismantles us even as his grace draws us close. We need both. So see how awe-inspiring God presents himself here. In verse 11, 18, and 20, God comes down to Mount Sinai. I mean, over and over again, did you hear God coming down? Uh, The pagans viewed their gods as dwelling on the mountains. You think of the Greeks with Mount Olympus. And yet the true God, Yahweh, uh, is everywhere present, and especially in creation, he dwells in his resplendent, radiant, heavenly throne from which he controls all things. And to meet with his people, 
He has to come down to this little mountain. Riken again says, to visit his people is always a come down. He stoops to redeem us. He leans down to know us. And so the religions of the world speak of a code of ethics or spiritual practices or some sort of enlightenment to to scale the mountain and be right with God or in fellowship with God. And yet this passage says God dwells too high and lofty for us ever to meet him. He has to stoop down and reach us. And that's the distinction of the gospel, that God comes for you in Christ. And notice the visible appearance he gives to his people is just fearsome. Verse 16 and following, he manifests himself through this booming thunder, this flashing lightning, this imposing thick, dark cloud, this ear-splitting trumpet that just keeps getting louder, deafening, uh, this wall of smoke, this inferno of blazing fire, and an earthquake-like shaking and rumbling of the mountain. Um, It's frightening. It's hard for us to put ourselves there. And we get an inkling of it sometimes if you walk outside during a storm and this thunderclap and a bolt of lightning immediately follows it and you kind of want to crouch down before that. Or in 2014, some of us, even better than others, when you heard uh, the tornado coming, it was this train coming, bearing down on you. Or if you've ever been in an earthquake, um, I've been in a small earthquake on the seventh floor, and all of a sudden everything so solid is like a wave. It's an inkling, a hint of what Israel is experiencing here before Mount Sinai and God's presence there. And why does God do that? He's pressing his people with his holiness. He's other than them. He's set apart from them. He's full of power. He's preeminent. He's utterly pure and there's no stain. It's this transcendent purity that he impacts them with at the mountain. And and you and I have to know that. We have to know that. Uh, Creation preaches it all the time. But even more, God's law proclaims it to us. God's law does. Um, It's not a sensorial display of God's holiness, but it's even a greater manifestation of who God is. Who who of us has not approached 1 Corinthians 13, for example, and read what love is? and have been completely undone by it and said, who can love like that? And been blown away with God's holiness, greater than what we see at Sinai here. In fact, Sinai underscores the reality of the awesome nature of God's law. So we see a couple of things here is the law is a terror in one side because who can reach it? And yet, and yet it stuns us. We would love somebody to treat us as the law portrays. And at the same time, the law is a treasure because it comes from this God and God is saying, you can imitate me and come to know me. 
At the same time, we see that God is not only holy here, but God comes close here. He's kind here. He's even comforting. Um, the imminence of God here. The Lord, up until this point in Exodus, the Lord voluntarily entered into the agony of his people in Egypt. He visited them there. He was there. The Lord rescued his people from their sin and also their suffering. The Lord became a caring companion in the wilderness with his people, giving them food and water when they, they didn't have it. The Lord bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. Just beautiful. It's like they didn't even have to walk. And on the mountain, the great and glorious God comes down to them, indicating he wants a relationship with them and us. He manifests his holiness, and he does so through fire, because fire is a wonderful symbol of holiness. It both enthralls us, and it also can endanger us, like God's holiness. But God manifests his holiness in a veiled form. That's the point of the thick, dark cloud. If he didn't shroud himself, veil himself in a cloud, he would disintegrate us by his presence. But he does so that he can be with his people, for he desires to know them and be known by them. We see grace and compassion and abounding loving kindness, which teaches us the law isn't just a terror to us. It is because we fall short of it, but it's also an incredible invitation to us to let go of our pride and our self-sufficiency and resources, to humble ourselves and to cast ourselves on God's grace and mercy. And that's why at the end of this worship service, Moses takes blood and just sprinkles the people. You're gonna fail. It's all you need, the sacrifice that I provide. We see holiness and we see grace, the greatness of God and the grace of God. So how do we approach God? How do we approach God at this Lord's day? How do we approach the revelation of his will in his law? Well, there's a few things I just wanted to bring out. First, in verse eight, right at the beginning, when God said, this is what I've done for you and this is what I desire for you and the way I want to bless you, the, Moses comes down and tells the people that, and in verse eight, the people just go, all the Lord has spoken we will do. And yet they don't know what God's going to tell them to do. That doesn't come till chapter 20. It's a little bit naive that they committed to obeying it before they knew what they were going to obey. And yet that wonderful, enthusiastic, impulsiveness of the people is so instructive to you and me. Who wouldn't respond that way before such a great and a gracious God? It says to us, what's our inclination before God's will? Yes, I'm gonna obey it. I want to obey it because it's a revelation of who you are. Second, verse 10 uh, God tells Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready on the third day. And then in verse 14 and 15, Moses does that, repeats it, and then says, don't go near a woman. Uh, what's going on with this? What's the point here? 
Well, the whole idea of consecrating themselves and washing their garments, it means, look, take this time to examine yourselves, to confess your sin, look at it, confess it, renew your faith in the Redeemer, and repent of your faithlessness. They've had a little faithlessness to repent of. Repent of it. The cleaning of the clothes is a symbol of the purification of their hearts. On a wedding day, a woman wears a white dress into church. It symbolizes that she's a bride ready for her husband. In a similar way, they're washing their clothes, saying, we want pure hearts. I mean, it's this... It's not a, um, a secondary desire of the people. Like we're washing our clothes, showing we desire our hearts to be pure. They wait three days because God gives them that period of time to meditate on his holiness as they look at the mountain. But what about that odd command, don't go near a woman? Do women not get to go to the foot of the mountain? Well, that's not what he's saying He's speaking to married couples and saying, don't have sex. Like, but why would God say that? Is it in some sense subspiritual at the mountain? Or is it in some sense shameful? But we know scripture says God's very pro-sex in marriage, rejoices in it. So what's he saying here? It's something like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, refrain for a time, but why? God's saying, I want your undivided attention right now. I want you to be enthralled and attracted to me right now. I want you to give yourself unreservedly absorbed with me and my nature right now for a time. He's also telling his people, I don't want you worshiping me like the nations worship their gods. Baal, Ashtoreth with their fertility rites, trying to negotiate and manipulate the gods to come through with their crops and their children. I want you to lay your hearts bare before me. I'm the gracious and great God that's for you and is out for your best. Well, third, verse 12 through 13, Moses has to put limits and barriers and boundaries around the mountain, and it's not a small issue. If somebody touches the mountain, beast or man, they'd be stoned or shot with arrows. So why all that? Again, God's teaching us about holiness. When he met with Moses at the burning bush, he said, stop right there. My presence makes this mountain, it's the same mountain, holy, take your shoes off. And here he's telling them, don't touch the mountain because it's holy because I'm here. So the barriers protected God's people from his holiness. Um, God's saying, I can't tolerate sinners. I can't. Sin can't abide in my holy presence. And you need to know that in order not to have a low view of sin. In these three days, learn that lesson. The same token, he's saying, the barriers protect God's holiness from the people. 
See, verse 21 through 25, it's on the third day now, and God sent Moses back down to the people with the same message, don't touch the mountain, don't climb the mountain, don't break through to see the Lord, lest the Lord break out against you. And Moses says, we already covered that with the people three days ago, or two days ago. Why are we having to tell them that again? But evidently God thought it was necessary. And why might God think that's necessary? for people like you and me. You see, he's guarding against a presumptuous attitude in worship, a presumptuous way to relate to God. Evidently, the people are getting lax or the people are getting too curious, wanting to peer into mysteries that God had put limits around. And you and I can develop the same attitude, can't we? We don't take seriously God's holiness. We have a low view of our sinfulness. Or we demand answers to questions that God has judged we don't need to know the answers for. And we want more and we get frustrated. Why is this happening to me? Why don't I understand that truth? And God's saying, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness, trust me. Well, then the fourth, verse 16, how do the people approach God? The people, even Moses, are trembling. You notice that? They're shaking. Hebrews tells us Moses is scared. And part of that is right on. Hebrews 12 says we're to worship God with reverence and awe. But part of this is because God has not yet unveiled the mystery of how a holy God can enter into a relationship with sinners. They're still viewing things dimly. They don't see the mystery yet. And so that leads us to who we need. Who do we need to truly approach the mountain? What well, you notice in our reading that 80-year-old Moses is hoofing it up the mountain and down the mountain and up the mountain and down the mountain, up the mountain and down the mountain. He's done it three times in our chapter. In Exodus, he does it seven times. It's a visual aid for us. They've got to have Moses as the mediator. Furthermore, Moses breaks through the barrier. Moses represents the people. God speaks to Moses in a voice that the people hear so that they know Moses isn't just giving his own instruction, he's giving God's instruction. Uh, Moses is the go-between and the bridge, and yet Moses and the people and we all know he's not adequate for that task. To this point in Exodus, Moses keeps telling us, I didn't want to do it, and I sinned in this way. I'm not an adequate mediator. We read this of him going up and down the mountain, and we see the mediator we've always needed. We see Christ. He points to Jesus. Uh, Moses points to Jesus, the God-man who alone is capable of standing in God's presence for us, who's revealed God's holiness in veiled form in human flesh and does so permanently for his people, who took the sentence of our guilt and our corruption. And we see the mystery the father looked at his beloved son and said, go down, go down to them. And Jesus did so in his incarnation. And as one of us, he not only taught the law, but he obeyed the law. 
And then Jesus upon the cross, he suffered the thunder and lightning of God on our behalf, poured out upon him. All this symbolized that God judged him in our place. Therefore, there's no barrier to us into the presence of God. In fact, when the father looked at his son in the grave and said, come up to me, Jesus was raised to the right hand of the father. And when Jesus sits down at the throne of grace, you and I are seated in him there in God's presence. And then Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts by faith and the Father and the Son make their home with us. And that's all the delightful contrast between, in Hebrews 12, between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. We don't come to Sinai now, we come to Zion. Not because Sinai is wrong, but it's just preparatory for the fuller revelation of grace that you have received in Christ Jesus, the mediator. Because Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Cain killed Abel, and his blood from the ground cried out for justice against Cain. But Jesus' blood cries out saying, I satisfied the justice for my people. They are not under the condemning wrath of God. I took it for them. I came down to do that and to seek and save sinners. You sent me to do that and I absorbed your judgment for them. And because of that, you and I go to Zion. It's not because God is less holy, but it's because we see in Christ the full remedy, satisfactory remedy for sinners the beautiful mystery of the gospel of Christ that Jesus obeyed for you and died for you and you are welcomed and the throne on top of the mountain has become the throne of grace where God says with confidence you come and I'll give you grace in time of need. Look, that's the gospel for God's people. The law is brought into that and we get to throw ourselves into it knowing we're wrapped up by the grace of God and we get to practice looking a little more like our Heavenly Father who's loved us like this. And may it be so. Amen.